you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. Ken also has owned his own construction company for over 30 years. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. If you'd like to join us, you have a question for Ken. There's a couple of different ways you can participate in the program. You can always give us a call at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can forward emails to Ken's website, and that is KenTheContractor.com. We're going to start with a mailbag question today. And this is one that I feel from time to time, but I want to spend a little more time with it today for all of you for some reasons that I'll explain as I go along. And this one comes to us from Miriam out of Virginia. It says, can you paint over oil-based paint with water-based paint? Getting old paint off the wall and off the trim is very hard. Well, Miriam, I'm pleased to tell you that you can, but in this uh, next few minutes, I'm going to tell you a lot of things that you need to know, especially if you're dealing with anything that contains lead in it. First, when it comes to painting over oil-based paint, it's all in the prep with the latex. You hear me say that about any type of painting. The work is in the prep. It's not in the final application. So if you're dealing with oil-based paint that was put on in 1990, 95, and much beyond that, it's been difficult to find oil-based paint. But some of you may have uh, had some success with that and be looking to paint trim today, or walls for that matter, with a latex. And the first thing that needs to take place is that you need to lightly sand the area, whether it's the trim or whether it's the wall material itself, because the oil-based paint tends to leave just a little bit of a sheen. It's a much harder surface. It does not allow the latex to bond well by itself. If you paint latex over it in its current state, you're going to find that you can take a thumbnail and just scrape it off later. You've wasted your time and you've wasted your money. So you're going to need to sand that with a high-grit sandpaper just to rough that surface up. You're not trying to take the paint off the wall. Secondly, you want to be sure those walls are thoroughly cleaned after you do that or wipe down the trim. If that's what you're painting, then you want to be sure that you're applying a primer to the walls or trim. And your paint store can help you with that. If you have any stains that's bleeding through, you may want to consider a product like Kills or some other brand name as a primer before you put your latex on top because it will not only seal the, seal the stains, if you will, so they don't continue to bleed through. This may be magic marker, ballpoint ink. It could be water stains. They will be, bleed through a, a latex-based paint. So you want to be sure they're sealed properly. Then you want to go back and apply that finished latex or water-based paint on top of that. And depending on your color, it may take a couple of coats. So anyway, those are some basics that you need to follow to apply a latex paint over an oil base. But the big thing that I want to caution everybody about has to do with older homes that have oil-based paint. Houses that were painted and built prior to 1978 typically contain lead as far as the paint is concerned. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, there's approximately 130 million homes in the United States. Now, out of those, and you have to ask yourself this question, am I living in one? Out of those, about 85 million homes were built pre-1980. And that means that the majority of the homes in this country will contain some level of lead in the paint that's in the trim, on the plaster walls, on the drywall, interior or exterior. So if you live especially in a pre-1978 home, even if you just bought it five years ago, it doesn't matter if it was built prior to that date. Chances are pretty strong 
that most of the trim or woodwork inside or walls contain lead-based paint. So there's some special things you need to know, especially if you're doing this yourself, and that is to follow the EPA standards and guidelines. And if you're hiring a contractor, I also want you to be aware of this. But clearly, according to EPA, common renovation activities such as sanding, which I just talked about in the prep, if you're cutting wood, you're doing demolition work, will create hazardous lead dust in the air. And that's hazardous for us to breathe. It's hazardous if it gets in drinking water, anything else around you. I think most of you are pretty much are pretty familiar with the lead issues we've seen around this nation over the years. And that's the reason in April of 2008, the EPA issued a renovation, repair, and painting rules that apply across this country to contractors, to renovators, to paint contractors, to specialty trades. So it really doesn't matter who you're hiring. If you've got a licensed professional and if you are paying someone to do this work, they must conform to the EPA standards. Now you're saying, well, that's great. I've got small projects. I tend to do these myself. Does it apply to me? Technically, under the law, it does not. As an individual homeowner, you can work within your home without being a certified lead uh, paint uh, abatement contractor or holding a license or having gone through the training classes. But what you need to understand is that the the reason these rules were put into effect is for our own health and safety. They recognize that not only do contractors and the employees of those contractors have issues working in this environment, but the homeowners. So it's something you need to pay close attention to, and I'll, I'll give you some information in just a moment on where you can find more data. Now, I do want you to understand, because some of you are saying, well, I do all my own work, I own my own rental properties, and I, I don't have to hire a contractor. I don't really worry about that. But the rule affects, as I said, paid renovators or contractors who work in pre-1978 housing and child-occupied facilities. And what this means is under this rule, a child-occupied facility is also defined as residential, public, or commercial buildings. And there are so many people across this country that do home daycare. They keep multiple children in their home. They're properly licensed, and it's fine for them to do so. But if you are renovating, if you are painting, then these federal laws come into play because it is considered a child daycare facility. So you need to be aware of these. Keep yourself out of trouble. But by all means, do things safely. And that's really the goal when we talk about this is to do everything in a safe and proper manner for your benefit and for those that are around you. Also, if you're hiring a contractor and they're saying, yeah, I'm certified, ask that contractor to provide you a copy of their EPA state-led training certificate. They will have one. Also, tell them if you've had any tests regarding lead on paint in the past in your house. They need to know about that. They may perform their own test. And you want to ask for some references for this contractor, paint contractor, renovator, whoever you're hiring, regarding the last several homes or office buildings they renovated and how they have dealt with lead-based paint. It's a very critical item. If you're doing it yourself, pay special attention to some of the safety regulations, and you'll be great with it. I'm going to ask kind of a basic question. How do I, first of all, determine if i got to go through all this? If I don't remember if I've moved into a, a home or um, now occupying a, a commercial space as to whether or not I've got lead-based paint and I have to deal with it in a certain way. A couple of quick ways to determine that. One, if the home was built pre nineteen before 1978 and you're acquiring it today, there's going to be a disclosure statement that the real estate people across this country are going to have to have you sign off on. You may even have to have an inspection before that. A lot of this may have been dealt with some years ago. But if it has not, you're going to have to acknowledge that. It doesn't mean you can't close on the home. 
but it will have to be disclosed to you that the house contains lead-based paint. And if you're in a home and you're just not sure, there's certain tests you can do. You can take a, a Q-tip, for example, with a little nail polish remover, if, as long as it's got acetone in it. Some does not today. And go in some place in a closet or wherever and scratch around a little bit. If the paint comes off, then you know that it is a, uh, a lead-based paint. So there are a few other ways to, to determine that. It's also fairly sticky or tacky to deal with. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can email questions to his website, KenTheContractor.com. And while you're at our website, you can also listen to podcasts, recent programs, and get a whole bunch of very helpful home improvement information. That's all at one spot on the web, KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. If you've got a question about your home, inside or out. Let's go to the phone lines right now. Donna's got one of those questions. Hi, Donna. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Got a question. I think I might have a problem. Um, I had a section of a single wide mobile home roof blown off about, I don't know, four or five weeks ago. Um, I hired a contractor uh, to come in and repair it. Um, he went and, of course, the other section that was on there blew off. But anyway, he went and put a rolled uh, galvanized roofing on it. Then he used some hex head screws and drilled those through into the trusses, some of which he missed, but they did have the rubber washers on it. Then he put tar down and on the seams, and then on top of the seams, he went back and used this stuff called peel and seal. Um, I wasn't very happy with the job, but I have right much money tied up in it. Um, needless to say, I'm not using this individual anymore. But because of the amount of money I've spent in it already, is there anything that I could use to put on or apply some sort of an application or something that may possibly seal what he's already put there? There are a number of roof products out there made for metal roofs, and essentially on a mobile home, that's what you have. And I yes, gather from, from your comment that you repaired or replaced an original section. This was not a roof over. This was the yes, original sir. roof no, on the mobile the home. Wind took, yeah, the wind took the roof off. He used the rolled uh, galvanized roofing. Uh, he did use hex head screws with the washers. Okay. Um, we assumed he was going to be crimping the metal that was there, which he didn't, and he used tar on the seams, and then he came back with the stuff called peel and seal. But we're a little leery because we also had some damage done in the interior, believe it or not, when we used to have rain that came in and uh, through the ceiling. Um, and I'm a little bit concerned because now I'm getting the drywall repaired, and I'm like, is this roof going to leak? Well, I'm just going to ask, have you had any signs of a leak since it has been repaired? Yeah, we had about an inch of rain uh, several nights ago, yes. and thus far I haven't seen anything. Now, he tells me that he won't warranty because I made it bad, but anyway, um, he said it will not leak. But it's just something about that peel and seal stuff that he put over top the uh, tar that he used on the seams. It just doesn't look like it's very stable. Well, did he cover the seams only? Yes, sir. Okay, because you said two things that long-term would concern me. One, you mentioned there were screws that went into the metal that did not attach to any of the joists, the, the wood framing members below That's that. So they're correct. simply screwed yeah. into the metal with a rubber washer around them. Yeah, 
uh, and it's on that section, he went and he, he put like an extra thing of peel and seal. Okay, well, uh, anytime you've got a fastener that's not going into a structure, I can promise you that fastener will leak. It needs to be bonded tightly to something in order to make that washer work. So that was one item you said that okay. didn't concern me. If that has been sealed over, then I wouldn't have quite the concerns that I did prior. As far as the seam goes, now there are the, the peel and seal, there are several products on the market that essentially function the same way. Not knowing what brand he, he used or whether it was made for this application, I can't really address that, but I can tell about, you. About a $35 uh, roll. Okay. Uh, I can tell you, though, that most of those products are made for a type application that you're talking about. They don't necessarily look pretty. Uh, but they will do a decent job of sealing. Uh, my answer, to some extent, is a lot like painting. It's in the prep work. Now, if everything is put down properly below it, if it had the right type of surface, according to what the manufacturer recommended on this peel and seal, then you're probably fine with that in terms of covering the joint itself because the joint's where you're going to have the greatest amount of expansion and contraction, and I would think long-term you're going to see a greater potential for a leak there than perhaps other areas. Right. But, again, it doesn't necessarily look pretty. There are other coatings still. There are some metallic coatings, silver coatings, and others that are designed especially for mobile home roofs that you might go back over that with. The problem that'll with feel like that will seal maybe a little bit more reinforcement. Yes. Some of these actually have fibers that are part of them that, that reinforce, that keep it from just separating. But okay. sometimes it's about the price. You're going to pay a little more for a product that may be a reinforced item. There are other products okay. out there that would require you to put a fabric down to embed the fabric or the membrane, if you will, in this particular okay. product, and it's coated both bottom and top. The other thing you have to be concerned with on all roofs when you're doing repairs uh, is dealing with a product that will last long-term under the UV light because the UV light from okay. the sun tends to break a lot of these things down. Okay. And it may look good short-term for six months or for a year, but long-term it just does not hold up. That's true of caulking right. products and others out there. Are so, you recommending something like if you do the aluminum paint that has the fiber, you said something, I mean, is that but extra sealant? Yeah, as an additional sealant. But what I would do, again, in your particular circumstance, because you've identified two different products that have been applied as far as the repair goes, if you have okay. those cans or, and or those boxes or labels, I would take that information, Take both of those with me saying, look, this is what's gone on my repair. Take it to uh, to your, your supply house uh, okay. where you can get roofing materials and say, I need something that's compatible with this. Because okay. the other issue you can find is you put another roof repair product on that, and it actually causes it to break down. They are not compatible. These are chemical-based okay. products. So you want to be sure that you're not diluting or eating something else up by putting something else on top of it. Good. So I would take right, both I'll... of those and go to one of the local supply houses that handle roof repair items, explain to them, okay. just as you have to us, that it's a mobile home roof, what has taken place, that you've got a membrane that's applied, that you've got a peel and stick over the top of that. You want right. to have added reinforcing to that, perhaps even over some of the screw heads if you're concerned about those. Yeah, what I am. It, and, and, I, and I would be, again, if you're, you, you may only know of some that missed the joist up there, but not all, because to me, okay. from what I'm hearing, that's your greatest potential leak going down the road right now. That's what I keep looking at, too, because, I mean, he said, well, I used rubber, you know, with these hex head screws. And I said, yeah, but you didn't attach it to the trusses. Yeah, I mean, using those, I think, is fine. Uh, it's no different than putting a pre-engineered metal building together. It's the same type of fastener with a rubber washer on it. But if those do not go into something where they can bond and they can they can actually compress a little bit, then in a very short period of time, you're going to find a leak around that screw. 
right. And, thank you so very much. And, and I would do that before I spend the money to have my drywall repaired and those other items. Yeah, that's that's my next concern. I'm like, oh, gosh, now what? <laughs> because then you start putting good money after bad, so just be sure you're comfortable with yeah, that. Yeah, I've roof. already did that. I've already did that one. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate okay. it. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Donna. And we always wish the best. It is a, a tough situation. It really is. And and one of the things that I didn't address greatly, but she said early on that the person that did this work said there is no guarantee, but it won't leak. Folks, when you're going to invest any amount of money, you want somebody reputable that's going to honor a warranty because, again, we're all human. We can do things wrong. Products can malfunction. There could be a batch issue. I've seen just about everything. So take it from me. You want a reputable party doing the work. You want to have a warranty behind it, and you want it done right the first time because now she's dealing with patching what turned out to be a patch rather than just doing it right from day one. Well, and I know that's the single most frustrating thing when you go out and you get somebody to do work is you want it done right the first time or you want somebody to stand up for the job. And, and I think that's what we all desire. And that's why when you find somebody, a good mechanic or something else, you go back to them if they stand by their work. Over and over again, that's their best sales tool. Many people don't operate that way. If you've got a question for Ken the contractor, Ken Patterson, reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And let's deal with one of those email questions right now. It comes to us uh, from Bobby in Topeka, Kansas. Bobby has an unusual problem, but I think I've experienced this, and maybe I can help you out here, Bobby. said, I have a clicking noise that occurs in the inside wall that backs up to my master bedroom. says, the noise only occurs occasionally. At first, I thought it was water leaking, but I have no signs of that. I only hear this when someone is in the bathroom, and it does not occur at all times. Any ideas on what causes this? Or do I have a leak? By the way, my house is a single-story frame ranch style built on a crawl space. I don't know if that information helps. Well, Bobby, I'll tell you and everybody else, the more information you send me, it makes it a little easier to diagnose a problem and help offer some direction for you. It's a little like going to your doctor. you got to tell them all the ailments before they can uh, make some recommendation to you. But in your particular case, I'm going to suggest to you that you may have a waistline. I want you to check this. You may have a waistline that has been installed extremely tight through the wall framing, the stud work, if you will. I want you to pay attention, Bobby, the next time you hear this noise and determine if somebody has the hot water turned on in the bathroom. I have experienced this myself. I have had this issue with some homes built in the past where I've had to make some correction uh, in them where the plumbing lines are installed so tightly as they penetrate a uh, an opening, a hole that has been drilled in the stud cavity, if you will, or in the stud, that when you turn the water on, these lines, the hot water, these lines expand, and they will actually create a cracking sound. And if it's very low, it can sound a little bit like dripping water. But for, in most cases where I've experienced, it is quite loud, and you get a click, click, click sound out of it, and then it, it picks up in pace, and it also reduces over time. So I want you to pay some attention to that, and for the rest of you saying, this sounds really strange. If you've got a clicking sound coming from a wall in your bathroom and no signs of a leak, pay attention to that as well, and that may help you along with Bobby. Our phone lines are open at 800-614-2975. Let's say hi to Dan, who joins us right now. Dan, hi, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. 
Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Hi there. How can we help you today? Yeah, I, um, my wife and I are looking to uh, build a house in the very near future, and we were curious if it was cost-effective to look into solar or geothermal for you know heating and cooling. Tell you, if you're if you're a green energy person, and not everybody is, more and more people are today. By all means, I would suggest you explore it because I think you need to make informed decisions when it comes time to build a house or remodel, especially when you're looking at your heating and cooling source. And in your case, you may be talking about providing energy for power as well, not just heating and cooling. Cost yeah. cost per kilowatt hour based on both solar and geothermal has come down so much in probably the last five years, especially because of technology, that it really is quite affordable in many locations. Now, geothermal can still be quite high depending on the soil conditions that you have, the way it's installed, whether you have existing wells or wells, uh, one or more wells available on site for geothermal to function with. That can save you a lot of drilling cost. Or whether you have running water, a stream, or a lake on site, that can be very beneficial to you when it comes to geothermal. And geothermal is extremely inexpensive heating and cooling if you get past those parts of the infrastructure. Now, does your property have any of those things to offer? Well, I know we do have uh, underground streams. We don't have any lakes or streams nearby, but... Okay, nothing on the property. No running water, no ponds on site. No, no, sir. Okay. Well, that's something that's important because geothermal requires that lines be installed below grade or in constant water temperature. And what's taking place in many parts of the country today is these lines are being buried 7 to 10 feet below the ground in a horizontal fashion rather than drilling the deeper wells that they did in the earlier years. Now, that also helps reduce the cost of this and make it very cost-effective. But since yeah, you're, that's uh, something that uh, I've, I've noticed, too, that they did, they've did. they done that, and that's why we want to do it before we start building the house, and they can put that in before the house goes in. Spend some time with with two or three companies that specialize in geothermal energy, and be sure you're obtaining at least three bids because you're going to find even with three bids that you're going to have some discrepancy not only in what they're quoting but the dollar amounts that you see there as well. So be sure you spend some time with at least three and tell them what your needs are. Write this out in a spec form, meaning that I want to be able to do this, this, and this. I want hot water out of it. I'm looking, if you're looking to create some energy as well, some power through converters out of this, you want them to know that. But you want to be sure that all of your bids are based on the same information. So do that with geothermal. Now let's go to the other part of your question, which was solar. Solar energy as well has come down uh, greatly per kilowatt hour cost. But there's so many things available today that's, that is solar that's not just a solar panel. For example, uh, there are heating and cooling systems that have their own solar cells in them. They are fueled off sunlight. They have their own backup system. They actually take the excess power that you're not using and will allow you to sell it back to the grid. This is all part of a heating and cooling package by some manufacturers. You'll also find that there are solar shingles. And I don't know if you've heard me talk about that, but there are solar shingles that have been in the market now about two years that are gradually making their way across the country that take the place of your your shingle on the house and at the same time provide you with a full roof of solar cells. Well, that sounds interesting. So I, I haven't think heard so, you talk about it, but okay. I'll look into that. Well, since you're interested in this, I really would recommend you look at that. Dow makes this. 
And I think that's one of the items that you need to be uh, taking a serious look at on the shingles. And, Dan, you can find a lot of this stuff that Ken has talked about at his website. Uh, you can pull up podcasts and also email questions and answers where he's discussed, I believe, all including geothermal and solar and those solar shingles. You'll find it all at our website at kenthecontractor.com. All right. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Good luck to you. Thanks, Dan. We appreciate it. Just so, so we all, solar is pretty much self-explanatory. Geothermal, what's the nuts and bolts of that and whether you should even be considering utilizing that, as Dan was talking about? Yeah, the bottom line on the geothermal is that you're extracting heat that is in the earth, that's naturally created. You're not pen- spending any money to create that, and it's at a constant temperature year-round. And there are folks saying, well, yeah, that's great if you live in Florida or southern Alabama, but uh, what about those of us that live here in uh, South Dakota? Uh, well, there's still heat in the ground. It may be further down. You may have a freeze line that's four or five feet, but still, when you get below that, there is constant heat in the ground. The further you go, the warmer it is and the more constant it is. So regardless of where you're listening to us, geothermal is a legitimate option. It may be more viable in certain parts of the country because of the topography and because of the type of soil conditions. If you're in a, a heavy rock environment, it's not going to be as practical from a dollar standpoint. But when you're living in an area where you have decent soil conditions and these lines can be installed either horizontally or wells drilled vertically without having to go to uh, several hundred feet through rock, uh, then it could be quite practical for you. And the systems today are not only producing heat and cooling as well. It's not just heat. It's heat and cooling for your homes. But in some cases, through converters and other sources, you can generate power and uh, use it for yourself. Sell it back to the grid. Geothermal or solar, can you do this cost-effectively, it sounds like that's your major expenditure is the upfront cost for this equipment. It's not unlike most items we talk about that's really new technology. The upfront cost tends to be greater, and unfortunately, the average person across the country, just you and I, Jim, are no different. In many cases, we're price point driven. We tend to look at that upfront cost. If you're building a new home, as we just talked to Dan, and it sounds like a new home under construction, you're going to be there for a long period of time. This would be the time to look at some of these energy efficiencies. You're going to put more down up front, but if you're financing it for 30 years, it's going to be a fraction uh, to add to your monthly payment. All right. If you do want to find out more, as we mentioned to Dan, go to our website, and that's KenTheContractor.com. Have a question for Ken? You can always reach him at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He takes your calls, questions about your home inside and out at 1-800-614-2975. That's 1-800-614-2975. Don't forget, you can also post your questions online at Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Joining us next is Denise. And Denise listens to our program on The Voice 830 AM, WEEU in Reading, Pennsylvania. Got a plumbing issue she's dealing with. Hi, Denise. You're on the air with Ken. I have a problem uh, fixing a toilet. I have a leaky toilet, and my directions I've been following say turn off the water and then drain, uh, flush and drain the the tank, and it will not flush once I turn off the water. What now, do I do next? Tell me first, what part are you replacing? Is this the flap or the uh, the interior of the tank itself? There was some kind of little washer thing that, uh, as, as I recall, was the next step to do. Since I couldn't locate just one of the washers, I got the whole little thing that goes in there, the uh, complete little... Okay, so you have a complete replacement kit for Correct. the interior of the tank Correct. itself. Correct. And, and your leak was at the base of that pipe where it makes contact with the tank and where the water supply comes in? Yes. 
once you turn the water off and you have a valve below the fixture in the wall that you can shut the main water supply off? Correct. You've turned it off there. Have you been able to get the water out of the tank? No, that's the okay. problem. I, I, I All right. flush it and drain it. Do you still have the chain attached to the flapper that's yes. in the bottom? Yes. That's all clean water. You can simply yes. reach in there and just pull that up, and the water should drain out of the tank. It will flush. Okay. That's what they're telling you to do there. What it'll do is go through the bowl, and you're going to drain that water out. It can't refill because you have turned the water supply off. So, right. so, again, just be sure that's off. Now, when you get through with that, you're going to find that there's a small amount of water, maybe a half inch of water still left in the bottom. So you may need to take a sponge or some paper towel, something along those lines, and completely absorb that water because when you take the nut off the threaded portion of the fill line, that water is going to leak out on your floor. All right. Because the leak you have, if I follow you correctly, is where the fill line comes into the tank. Is that correct? Yes. All right. So if you follow those steps and dry it up, because you want it dry also when you put the fitting back on and you tighten it up, then turn the water back on, and check it for leaks. Okay. So you're doing just the reverse. But that's what they mean by draining that. It will drain if you just reach in and pull that flapper up. It'll still go down into the bowl. Okay. Think that helps you? I certainly hope so, yes. Sounds well, like it's good. Okay, well, <laughs> give that a try. Don't over-tighten the fitting because you can break the, the toilet bowls. Right, just finger-tight it. You may want to go just a little more than that, but not much. Uh, if you put a wrench on it or a pair of pliers and you over-tighten it, you can break the porcelain. But okay. follow the instructions from there. Turn the water back on. Don't run off and leave it. You want to check it and be sure you've resolved your leak before you go anywhere else, leave the house, or do anything like that. All righty. We thank you for listening. We appreciate your call. Thank you for being there and answering. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Denise. And I don't know what it is. Invariably, and those of you listening to us, raise your hands. These things don't happen on a Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock that Denise was dealing with. They always happen at 1030 on a Sunday night or... 7 o'clock on Thanksgiving morning. Has that been your experience? Or Super Bowl Sunday when you're yes. paying double or triple time because it's not something you can do yourself. Exactly. That's another personal story. Yes. I'll have to tell you about one day when I have a little more time. Yes. That's but that's a, when these things happen. Yeah. Which is a reason we constantly bring to all of you out there, have things checked in advance of when you're ready to use them, such as your air conditioning, your heat. Even check that fireplace for safety. But one of the other items that we rarely think about, and I was asked this on the street the other day. Somebody ran into me, and that had to do with garage doors. They happen to have a garage door, and they have an operator on it. And they were having problems getting that door to open and close properly. They had disengaged the operator and still could not get the door to raise properly. There's maintenance involved on something that we rarely think about. And for those of us, and I'm, I'm one that's a guilty party, you got that little push button and you expect the door to go up right. and down, you just want it to operate. The door has a degree of maintenance about it. Most of them have pulleys in some position on them. They've got wheels off on the side. They have springs at some point, a tension spring. There are all kinds of things that need to be adjusted to make it work right. They will get out of balance if a door is racked. If the tension's not right on one side or the other, then it's not square in the opening. And I believe the way the question was put to me that this was the issue this individual was having. So I made some recommendations to them. A garage door is not something that most of us want to fool with when it, when you get into the tension spring. There is a great deal of pressure on that, and I don't even fool with it myself because you can easily have an arm broken by getting up there trying to adjust it with a wrench and a pry bar and have that thing pull it out of your hand or twist around. 
uh, it can be dangerous. It takes a little bit of skill set and some people with a little knowledge to fool with it. So if you're not comfortable with that, you want to be sure you have a professional. But pay attention to your garage door occasionally. Don't just assume that it works all the time without maintenance because the first time you get in there and you're ready to back out and that thing doesn't go up, you may find that now you're going to have a new garage door if you're not good about looking in the rearview mirror before you back out. Well, you know, it surprises me because well, the garage doors that I remember through the years, you always had the option of disconnecting that operator and doing it by hand. But I know for, for some folks that's simply not an option because that's been the one big difference I've seen. These garage doors have become much more ornate. They're much heavier. And one of the main reasons they've become much heavier and more difficult to do by hand is you want insulation built into them. They used to be pretty flimsy stuff years ago. Some of them were even metal uh, that, that were used, very easy to take up and down, but they offered no insulation, and that garage in the winter would get exceedingly cold. You know, that's really good news about garage doors. They are heavily insulated for the most part today. You can still basically buy a single skin door that is not, but the, the tension spring that I'm talking about has been developed now so that when you disengage the garage door operator, you should still be able to raise and lower that door. It's going to take far more effort. There may be people out there who could not do it easily, but you should be able to raise and close the door. What we forget about, though, is, as I said a moment ago, that door has different guides and adjustments that, that keep the tension even on both sides. And when it gets racked in that opening, that's when you get stuck. Not only can the well, the operator not raise it, but you won't be able to raise it either. And it'll always be, as you said, it's not the Sunday evening where you're calling somebody out, but it's that appointment you're late for, you're running late for work, and all of a sudden your car is stuck in the garage and you can't get the door open. Now, fortunately, if you have a garage door operator, almost all of those have an emergency cord you pull and it disengages. So if you have an issue with that, it's not as critical other than now you're spoiled. you got to get out in the rain and raise or open the door one way or the other or close it. But pay attention to the door. If it's not something you can handle yourself, call a pro out, keep it adjusted, and it will service you then for many, many years. But if you don't, you're going to put big dollars, $1,000, $1,500 or more, into replacing what otherwise was a very good door and a good investment. Well, you know, and, and doors are something we get more and more questions about. I know you had some information on an earlier program that that's one of the things people tend to spend a great deal of time and, and money on, both interior and also exterior doors. Well, based on some recent national surveys, that was the number one item, entry doors to a home, that people can see the greatest percentage of return on their investment. It wasn't 100%. As I recall, it was in the mid-80 range. So if you're out there spending $100, you're likely to get $85 back for that when it comes time to sell the house. But many other products, you were getting $50 per hundred or you're getting less than that. So front doors did two things. Having a proper front door, it offers great insulating value for you today, makes the home more attractive, creates a little curb appeal, and has the ability to give you at least a good portion of that money back when it comes time to sell. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach him at 800-614-2975 and email your questions to our website, kenthecontractor.com. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Brent, and thanks for listening to Ken the Contractor.
you've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.